Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I began my writing career by exploring the tracks humans have left in nature. Now I'm mostly interested in the tracks nature leaves in us. That's author Gary Ferguson. He says that nature provides beauty, mystery, and community, traits that each of us very much needs. He's the author of 25 books. We talked to him in 2017 about his book, Land on Fire. Today we're going to revisit our conversation with him from February of 2018. We're going to talk about The Carry Home, a haunting meditation on wilderness, conservation, and grief, written following the death of his wife in a canoeing accident. We'll also talk about shouting at the sky, troubled teens, and the promise of the wild. And we'll talk about the Yellowstone Wolves, which Gary Ferguson has written about in two books, Yellowstone Wolves, the first year, and Decade of the Wolf. You have written, I'll just quote you, I began my writing career by exploring the tracks humans have left in nature, now I'm mostly interested in the tracks nature leaves in us. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that journey. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think being a nature writer, it's, it's common to start by uh, doing more expose-style articles, and certainly that's what uh, magazines and newspapers often want, about places that are threatened or, or being lost, and I think that's a valuable endeavor. But as I myself experienced change uh, from being out in the natural world uh, for years and then decades, I, I became more and more curious uh, about the power of, of nature to really instruct us and to make us wiser than we might otherwise be. And I, I have to say, Tom, I, I was very much moved by that concept when I wrote uh, about a group of at-risk teens, uh, they were so-called uh, wrestling with drug addictions and other issues, uh, going to a wilderness therapy program in southern Utah for a book I did called Shouting at the Sky. And here were kids uh, coming in who really uh, did not want to be in the natural world, let alone living out of backpacks for seven or eight weeks. And uh, they probably would have preferred almost any other location. But in fact, they, they came and they went through the program and Lo and behold, uh, the success rate of that and other good influence-based programs to this day remains about three times higher than the traditional 28-day lockdown facilities. So I was seeing nature open up something in, in those kids, even though they didn't want to be there, um, that was uh, really quite profound. And so I, I became more and more interested as, as the years went on about what, what nature can do for us as far as how we see the world and how we live in the world. Uh, maybe we could say on shouting at the sky for uh, for a moment here. Very interesting. You and you cite those statistics. Pretty, pretty staggering. And you're talking about and you wrote about uh, so-called compassionate programs, right? Not the boot camp type uh, wilderness programs. Yeah, and that's a very important distinction. The the boot camp kind of programs tend to not work very well, uh, other than for about two or three percent of the population for. Um, reasons that I don't need to get into now as far as that 2 or 3%. But for most kids, um, that kind of severe, almost punishment-based model is, is just not effective at all. And what the compassionate or influence-based programs do is to, of course, keep kids safe as their number one priority. But within that uh, concern of keeping them safe, allow them to make decisions out in wild places and then experience uh, natural consequences. If it's a warm enough summer night and you decide that uh, you don't feel like putting up your shelter to sleep under and uh, 
a staff person tells you, well, it looks like it may rain, and you say, well, I don't care, and uh, you wake up with it raining on you, and you're fairly uncomfortable. Uh, Odd as it may sound, that's one of the first experiences a lot of these kids have with um, logical or natural consequences. And as time goes on, they feel like they're more and more in control and more and more empowered, not only over staying comfortable in a, in a strange uh, environment, but also when it comes to working with other people in community, if you will, to, for the sake of the comfort of the group. And uh, gosh, I said those kids didn't want to be there, but by the time they left, uh, almost all of them, boys or girls, were, were in tears because it had been such a profound, powerful learning experience, and it gave them a sense of themselves that they uh, that they carried on for many years. I got in touch with them a decade later, and and uh, seven out of the ten said it remained the most powerful experience of their lives. I wonder if you could uh, talk about that transformation and why why it was not only important at the time but continued to be important in their lives years later. Well, it, it's interesting. I'm, I'm going to answer that question in regard uh, in, in the context of something I learned probably 25 years ago when I was asked to put a collection of uh, nature myths from around the world. And these were simple stories from every culture imaginable about how how things came to be in the world, from why the rainbow is in the sky and how the skunk got its stripes and on and on and on. And I reviewed probably 15, 1,600 stories. And it dawned on me after several hundred that every one of those cultures, every one of those stories was basically saying that in order to live well in the world, you needed to maintain a relationship with three things. One was beauty, one was community, and the other was mystery. And that if you had access to those in your life, you would generally do pretty well and you would know how to get out of difficult circumstances. And on the other hand, if you ignored or, or somehow didn't have one or more of those in your life, you would, you would suffer for it with depression or lack of ability to be successful in a relationship or on and on and on. And so that's very much what I saw come to life with those kids um, in the wilderness therapy program. They were introduced, many of them told me, to beauty for the very first time, which is sort of an alarming statement from somebody who's been on the planet for 16 or 17 years to say, I've never really seen or known beauty before. But the most common answer, which aligns with that quality of community I just mentioned, is they said that the reason it worked and the reason it remained so powerful is because, and this is a pretty much a quote, this is the first place I've been where what I did mattered. And that has to do with, again, the wilderness setting down harsh enough or real enough conditions that if, if you and I don't get along and we squabble, you know, and, and you don't want to start the fire for me to cook the food, uh, we're both going to suffer. And so they realized that their actions, if one of the young men sat down on the trail because he didn't feel like walking for three hours, then the group got into camp at, at well after dark and nobody was very enthusiastic about cooking, so they you know, shoveled down some cold food and went to bed, and then nobody was happy. And it was an opportunity for that, for that boy who sat by the trail to um, conclude that, wow, what I do and don't do matters in this group, in the welfare of this group. And that's one of the, uh, that's one of the great uh, lessons of that experience. And the last thing they said, well, was to me, um, it was powerful because I felt like I was a part of something bigger than myself. And that's where the mystery 
comes in for a lot of people that's uh, through their religion or some sort of spirituality, but they sensed uh, through nature, through wild nature, that they were really part of something uh, somewhat mysterious that they hadn't considered. So all on their own, they came up with the very conclusions that people had been coming up with for thousands of years. I'm interested in to follow up on you went you went back and talked to at least some of the young people a few years later and in talking about you know the tracks nature leaves in us the impressions that they left in these young people lessons they had learned I don't know if they got back into nature but but it had made an impression on them changed the trajectory of their lives um, I wonder if you had those conversations with them you know what how how it changed their daily lives as they got back I did. Um, of, of the uh, seven of the ten I followed for the first year, I got back in touch with ten years later, uh, who said it was you know such a powerful experience even a decade uh, afterward. Um, they were in various professions: psychiatric nursing, a drilling rig foreman, uh, a chef, retail workers, and then several of them had entered helping professions, including the psychiatric nurse, of course, but social work, teaching. They said, based on what they learned uh, about how important it was for them to be, what they said, generative. They knew the language by then because they'd gone through the program, and that means that they wanted to give back. Um, that's sort of the last phase of that particular and other wilderness therapy programs is, what are you going to do with what you've learned out there in the world? How are you going to make the world a better place with the wisdom you've gathered from being here in this wild place? And in that sense, it it very much mimics the traditional rites of passage that uh, teenagers had gone through around the world for, for thousands of years. So um, they, first of all, had to go back and face some of the uh, old original triggers that led to uh, dysfunctional behavior like drug abuse, and uh, several of them fell off the wagon a couple times. But as one uh, young woman told me, uh, and others echoed, uh, she said, the wilderness ruined my high. Uh, that I know too much. And what she meant was I know too much about myself. I know where this is leading. I know more about the darkness and the disempowerment that's going to happen because I've been in the wilderness and come to know who I am and what I need to be to live well in the world. And so um, it, it was really extraordinary how many of them, even if they didn't follow helping professions, they got involved with um, some of them religious uh, activities in their church, but many others, literacy programs, teaching uh, young people to read, uh, big brothers, big sisters. And, and that really was, uh, according to them, one of the things they learned, carried back, employed in their lives, that, that changed them for, forevermore. I wonder if we could expand this to, you know, to us collectively, um, you know, broader culture, um, how uh, I'm guessing that you would say it'd be beneficial for the broader culture to experience the mis the beauty, the mystery, the community uh, that comes from uh, from getting out into, into nature, but not all of us get out there. Uh, well, it, it's true, and and even small doses. Uh, they they've had studies come out in the last five or six years, especially that somebody who manages to get 20 or 30 minutes a week, of, and not even in wild nature, just out for a, a stroll uh, on a, a tree-lined street, um, has a, uh, an attitude and a, less incident, a smaller incidence of depression by far than those who never get out. So it's not something that you have to live at the edge of the wilderness to enjoy by any means. 
Um, there are, of course, physical health benefits. And now, uh, in certain uh, branches of ecology, they're discovering, uh, w- which I find fascinating, that there are actually these chemicals being released by trees, and when you walk under them, you're ingesting through the air these chemicals that not only boost your immune system and help uh, organ regeneration and things like that, but they also work uh, on the on the brain. They help uh, release the the serotonin and other chemicals that are necessary for feeling adjusted, feel feeling happy and and content in your life. So there's absolutely no question in my mind that. We have lost touch with beauty, community, and mystery. We would gain much satisfaction and and a happier, more productive country if we had them in, in place. And, of course, there are a lot of places, Tom, where you could get those. You could get them through music or, or art. It wouldn't have to be nature, but nature is, is sort of a tried and true place to, to get that. So to the extent we can make that a priority for us and our kids, I, I think we would see um, a, a different uh, and a more satisfying country. We are talking with writer Gary Ferguson. By the way, his uh, website is um, wildwords.net. And we're talking to him about several of his books. Um, we heard a discussion there of Shouting at the Sky, Troubled Teens, and The Promise of the Wild. Later in the program, we'll get into talking about uh, The Carry Home, a haunting meditation on wilderness, conservation, and grief following the death of his wife in a canoeing accident. And we'll be talking about the Yellowstone Wolves. We'll have more with Gary Ferguson following this break. This is Science by the Slice. The periaqueductal gray is a partially uncharted region of the brain. USU biologist Aaron Bobeck and her students are investigating a newly identified G-protein coupled receptor in this area of the brain called GPR-171. The receptor's role, they say, appears to be enhancing the pain-reducing effects of the brain's opioid receptors. Their findings could help efforts to develop safer alternatives to highly addictive opioid drug therapies. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu slash science. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are revisiting a conversation with writer Gary Ferguson. This was first broadcast in February of uh, 2018. We're talking to Gary Ferguson, author of uh, several books. We talked to him a few months ago on Land on Fire, talking to him about uh, several of his other books uh, right now, um, including Shouting at the Sky, Troubled Teens and the Promise of the Wild. We went into talking about the Carry Home a little bit later in the, in the program. Uh, so on the, the website um, is wildwords.net. And uh, you, you teach, uh, I guess, workshops. You do some lectures. I'm reading uh, from a paragraph on nature mythology. I'll just quote this. In the final years of his life, Joseph Campbell was often asked what he thought would emerge as the next significant body of myth in Western culture. He responded that such new stories would likely present the Earth much the way astronauts saw it, as a beautiful, fragile ball of life hurtling through the void of space. In other words, a dramatic crumbling of old boundaries. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, and do you see this happening? Do you see, you know, was Joseph Campbell predictive here? 
I, I think he was. Now, of course, anything, any change in society happens in fits and starts. And, and change, uh, whether it's something, you know, Joseph Campbell also said, sometimes you choose the mythical journey, sometimes it chooses you. Um, in the case of the Carry Home, which we'll get into later when my wife was killed in a canoeing accident, that was the journey choosing me. I would have never selected that, of course, on my own. But that kind of change, uh, uh, or much less change, brings with it change of opinion, change of orientation, a crumbling of boundaries. It brings discomfort. And so the, if there's progress or if there's opening up toward what Joseph Campbell was talking about, it's not going to be a linear a linear process. I, I do think, though, it, it is happening. It's being facilitated by a greater tolerance for diversity and really for one of the first times, um, perhaps in the last 500 years, um, a reconsideration of, of what ecologists call interdependence, how connected we all really are. And, you know, you, if you point to an issue like climate change, and it doesn't matter what you think the cause of climate change is, it, it doesn't matter where you live. The effects of that particular problem uh, are going to be with with us all. And so, to me, as a, an ecologist and somebody who sort of is a bridge between the scientists and the general lay public reader, um, something that I've been very uh, impressed with is uh, scientists now saying that we realize that there really is nothing more important in the world of life on Earth as far as whether it's going to be resilient and whether it's going to be able to withstand difficult circumstances, even catastrophe. There's nothing more important than the inter interdependent networks that, that support that life and also diversity, uh, interestingly enough, right, as diversity continues to come in the social conversation in, in the United States more and more, uh, that basically the more diverse of an environment you have as far as different species of plants, uh, for instance, and animals and insects, the more likely that uh, environment will be able to replicate itself after a disaster. So what I'm really interested in now, and my next book is focused on, is how do we take these these lessons from the natural world that have been working for millions of years in some cases, and certainly tens of thousands of years and others, uh, and, and apply them to how we're organizing our communities and how we're living our lives. So I think Campbell uh, is right, was right when he said that, um, but we're going to have to apply ourselves with some enthusiasm and commitment to 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 get there. Uh, maybe give us a little preview. Uh, are there some specific examples you can you can cite? Well, certainly, uh, you know what I just mentioned about diversity as far as the number of of plants and animals in a given, let's say, a, a watershed or an ecosystem is a great predictor of how that system will recover, as opposed to a more homogenous. Uh, uh, forest. Let's say we go in and, and uh, cut an area, even a clear-cut an area, and if in the wake of that we plant only the commercially valuable trees, what we end up with is a homogenous forest of even-aged stands, which is incredibly prone to two things. One is wildfire, uh, likely to be completely wiped out by wildfire at a certain age, the other is insect infestation. Pine bark beetles, for instance, love um, uh, pine trees of a certain age. And if we've planted just that species all at the same time, we've basically created a banquet the next time a drought 
uh, comes along for pine bark beetles to destroy that forest. So uh, if we take the time and effort to plant a variety of species that replicate what nature had brought to that area in the first place, and we stagger the plantings, we're probably going to be able to withstand disease, we're going to be able to withstand pathogens, we're going to be able to withstand wildfire. And so that's just one small example of diversity. As far as interdependence, you know, that that thing I mentioned uh, earlier, walking under the trees and having these uh, essentially pheromones released by trees and inhaling them and having them affect our bodies, uh, that's that's pretty profound to the point where one university of research one university of illinois researcher recently said i can predict how long you will live based on how green your environment is if your neighborhood has trees for instance or if you spend any time at all walking uh, out in the natural world i can make a pretty accurate prediction of how long you'll live and what kind of disease incidents you're likely to have so we're starting to kind of understand that we're maybe connected in a much more profound and significant way to uh, the natural world than we ever ever thought we were of course you know you can point to trees as being the producers of oxygen that we breathe and other things but there's a whole field of science opening up that's just really blowing everyone's mind as far as how interdependent we really are I want to have you talk um, a little bit about how we talk to each other. There, there's a, there's a, there, there can be very heated debates when you get to environmental issues. We've seen that over and over again here in Utah and very recently as well. And, and uh, one sentence stood out to me a lot um, on, on the website, wildwords.net. We're talking with Gary Ferguson. This is under your description of your lectures you give on uh, wolves, uh, Yellowstone wolves, reintroduction to the wolves to the Yellowstone. One of your books, uh, you, you followed the wolves the first year there, right? Then you went back. Uh, yes, yes, I did. Uh, so anyway, this, this sentence, uh, strategic shifts environmentalists can make to more effectively deal with land and wildlife-based conflicts, which intrigues me. What, yeah. what would you advise? What would you say? Well, and, and, and this is a great opportunity for me to say one of the things that the environmental movement has made a tremendous error in, and, and I'm talking about the modern environmental movement as it's understood, say, beginning in the late 60s through the 70s, which still has a certain trajectory to this day, is that it was driven by um, very well-meaning, and in many cases when it comes to clean air and clean water laws and keeping the lead out of kids' blood, um, and and therefore, uh, you know, not sacrificing their intelligent uh, intelligence quotients and some some other things that led to premature death. Those were all wonderful accomplishments. But the fact of the matter is, um, the environmental movement, conservation movement, have been too often led by um, white guys uh, who have been educated uh, in in traditional education systems, and they're applying to the best of their ability how they understand the world works and coming up with solutions that they think will lead to better better uh, living. The fact of the matter is we've not been nearly good enough at inviting everyone to the table. You cannot understand uh, by reading books and attending uh, science classes um, an environment nearly to the extent you can if you combine that with sitting down with a rancher uh, who's family has been there for the last 60 or 80 years and understands how the land reacts to certain grazing patterns and grazing activities and numbers of cows and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So to, to not have opened up the dialogue in a way that allowed everybody a place at the table um, is, is really unfortunate. 
Um, I also was a part of that covering the the story of the wolf reintroduction. I happen to think wolf reintroduction in a, in a few very limited places, and Yellowstone is one of those very few places, is a good idea because it brings the ecosystem back to what nature had created over thousands of years. And to give you one example, there's a, a lot of concern about chronic wasting activity going on in elk herds. Well, wolves uh, are, and I've watched this literally hundreds of times, um, known for chasing a herd, watching for who's compromised in some way in the back of the herd, and that's the elk they go for. They don't go for the trophy animals because there's too much chance of them getting kicked and killed or broken backs or necks or whatever. So chronic wasting is uh, just one small example of something that may be <clears throat> controlled if there's a proper predator base in place. At the same time, if those wolves get out of Yellowstone and they go into ranch country, they're going to kill some cattle. Uh, and so to not occasionally, most of them won't, but some of them will. Uh, so to not have as part of the original discussion, how are we going to compensate those ranchers who are losing livestock for the sake of bringing that predator back? One group, Defenders of Wildlife, had that conversation, and they put up money to actually pay those ranchers. But that was not a priority of a lot of the people who were for wolf reintroduction. And, and I think that by not building goodwill, by a broad consensus of people, even people who don't like wolves, nonetheless, sit down with them, find out what their concerns are, and how do we make them um, less, uh, uh, you know, worrisome. Uh, that's the way conservation uh, needs to proceed. And if we're going to end up with that thing you mentioned earlier with Joseph Campbell about understanding that the world is this kind of precious ball of life hurtling through the void, that's going to take that's going to take respecting everybody's position. And that's what we don't have going on uh, in this country uh, right now, uh, to, to the degree that we need it. We're each on our own sides and throwing stones whenever we get a chance. And the victories that either side uh, gains are, are short-lived because of that. Uh, it, they create backlash, and then the next side wins, and there's bad uh, ill will, and then we have backlash from that. And so instead of swinging back and forth, uh, we need to get a more sustainable path, and that's going to happen with respecting each other, and we all sit down at the table, find out what we've got in common. Are you are you seeing any movement there? Are you seeing anything that give, gives you hope, or are we going to be stuck specifically with environment or more broadly with just political polarization, do you think? Yes, I do. On a, on a local level, Tom, and a regional level, I see great hope, uh, way, way beyond the... Uh, the huff and puff of, of many of the politicians in Washington. I see ranchers uh, forming their own groups, uh, working with people who have pioneered, for instance, uh, holistic range management, which uh, figures out how to basically mimic what bison did on uh, rangeland for, for thousands of years, and that's intensively grain land, graze land, and then move along to a new uh, area and graze it. That particular land produces more, especially during drought cycles. The ranchers are able to sustain a greater economic base because of that. Um, so science then comes down to earth and works with ranchers, and ranchers work with scientists. Those kinds of things I, I do see happening uh, on a fairly regular basis. We, we, need a lot, we need a lot more of it, though, and we, we need politicians at the national level to at least honoring that process honoring the need for collaborative effort, for bipartisanship, for identifying what we all have in common as a need. I think most people do want clean air. They do want uh, clean water. They do want healthy children. And if we can start from what we want 
and then figure out ways to, uh, you know, employ uh, options for, for getting that, we, we get a lot farther down the road. But I, I am optimistic uh, on a lot of days. I really am. By the way, before we leave Wolves, I want to maybe get an update uh, from you or, or where you think this is right now. Plug the, the two books, Yellowstone Wolves, first year, out in 1996. Then you went back a decade of the wolf, returning the wild to Yellowstone from 2012. You've followed this story. It's been, I think, you know, fairly close to it, and, and some of these lands are very close to your heart. Um Anything surprise you from, from, you know, looking at with the long scope, reintroduction of the wolf now, you know, uh, several years later? Well, one of the interesting things to me, uh, and I'm not speaking as a wolf ecologist, again, I'm sort of the messenger who works with scientists and then tries to deliver an intelligent and accurate message about what's going on to a general reading public. Uh, but it surprised me that um, the wolves have in Yellowstone, and Yellowstone is a fairly protected, large, two-million-acre uh, place where it will support uh, a carrying capacity, it's called, of a certain number of wolves. Well, after peaking at a population uh, in the early 2000s of about 170 wolves, um, the last many years the wolf population has been steady at about 100 to 115 or so animals. Now, what that tells uh, me is that there is such a thing as a carrying capacity and that wolves are, are like every other species, that they can't just continue to grow and swell and take over the world because, in fact, very soon they would eat themselves out of house and home. And this is one of the arguments that I, I, I'm afraid I've, I've had with people who think wolves are going to just kill everything. Uh, wolves tend to 95% of the time kill only what their pack teaches them to kill, and that is reduced to usually a certain specific animal, either elk or bison, although they can learn. And sometimes they learn to eat cattle, and then there's a trouble. But um, they are being controlled by the land itself, uh, and that means disease is going through Yellowstone and killing wolf pups, uh, parvovirus being a great example of that on a fairly routine basis. Uh, wolves die. Uh, it's important to remember wolves only succeed 25% of the time. They try to kill an animal to eat. They only succeed one out of four times. Um, they do get kicked in the head, and they do get kicked in the ribs, and they die. Um, and, and so there are these controls on, on wolves, and while Yellowstone isn't a fully functioning natural ecosystem, it is a good reminder that sometimes nature can tweak things pretty well if allowed to you know, carry every aspect of the natural world to fruition, and that includes predators. It wasn't that long ago we were killing every predator thinking that we would lose all the elk if the predators w were returned, but in fact... Elk and wolves coexisted for thousands and thousands of years very, very successfully. And uh, they did so for the reasons I just outlined. So that was an interesting thing for me to see uh, playing out in, in the greater Yellowstone area. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with writer Gary Ferguson. We're uh, covering several of his books uh, and a couple books on wolves. Yellowstone Wolves, the first year in the decade of the wolf. Earlier in the program, we talked about shouting at the sky, troubled teens, and the promise of the wild. 
In our last segment coming up, we'll be talking about, about the Kerry Home. It's a meditation on wilderness conservation and grief written following the death of his wife in a canoeing accident. Uh, the website is wildwords.net. By the way, Gary Ferguson's latest book from 2019 is called The Eight Master Lessons of Nature, What Nature Teaches Us About Living Well in the World. We'll have more with Gary Ferguson following this break. Utah Public Radio will be bringing you NPR special coverage of the funeral titled A Celebration of Life for Civil Rights Icon and Congressman John Lewis. That will be happening at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta tomorrow. Our coverage will begin at 8.30 in the morning tomorrow, right here on Utah Public Radio. My name is Martha Ham. I'm David Kaup, and I listen to Utah Public Radio in Germany using the UPR app. I'm Kathy Lynn Jones, and I listen to Utah Public Radio from Mesquite, Nevada, online at upr.org. You're listening to Access Utah. We're talking with writer Gary Ferguson. This conversation was first broadcast in February of 2018. We are uh, talking with writer Gary Ferguson, and uh, his website is wildwords.net. You can check out uh, many of his books uh, there. The most recent book is uh, Land on Fire. We talked to, to him about that a few months ago. And now an opportunity to talk about uh, some of the other uh, books. And uh, I want to get into talking about uh, probably your most personal book to date, most intimate. That's The Carry Home, um, which is is a celebration of the outdoor life shared between Gary Ferguson and his wife Jane. And uh, then what happened as she died and then the aftermath. uh, Jane died tragically in a canoeing accident in northern Ontario in uh, 2005. Finally, the uh, mending, uplifting power of nature. So, uh, Gary Ferguson, this maybe just tell us briefly what uh, what happened. This was a I guess, you two were used to being out in the wild, right? Uh, all sorts of activities. This happened to be a canoeing trip. Yes, Jane and I had been uh, together twenty five years, and we were uh, almost constant wilderness companions. We were canoeists, and we were backpackers and, and, and bicyclists and so forth. We had been up in Canada doing a sort of an advanced uh, whitewater canoeing workshop. And uh, afterward, to make a long story short, uh, had heard of a, of a small river called the Kapka River that uh, all in all was really supposed to be a walk in the park, so to speak, as far as canoeing uh, skill required mattered. And um the only problem was, and it was a big one, Tom, that's that there was a Class 5, which is a very severe stretch of white water that needed to be portaged. And because of a blowdown due to an ice storm, and a blowdown, I mean blowdown of timber because of an ice storm a couple of years earlier, the portage route, uh, and that's the trail by which you carry your boat around an unrunnable stretch of water, had been changed closer to the head of the rapid. And because of a sort of a perfect storm set of hydraulics that uh, were in play that day, um, that portage route was unreachable. And uh, despite scouting ahead of time, we were swept into that uh, two to three hundred yard stretch of white water. Uh, it wasn't a matter of if we were going to flip. We it was a matter of when. In an open canoe, you you take on water, and that makes the boat, of course, less and less stable. We did flip. I was pinned under the boat for quite a while, managed to free myself, and 
got caught in some what are called recirculation pools uh, twice and nearly drowned. And then my leg was driven into a rock crevice and broken in several places before I was kicked out. Um, I fashioned a, a crutch and uh, looked for Jane, did not see her, knew I had to get out and uh, managed to basically crawl out for several miles over down timber from that ice storm and, and uh, uh, summons uh, a search team. Uh, it took three days before that search team was able to find Jane's body. Uh, she had hit her head evidently right as the canoe went over, and because of the dark tannin-colored water, it was impossible to see her, so they had to bring in a dog who was trained to uh, pick up scents coming from under the water. Now, oddly enough, uh, Tom, two days before this happened, and we had not had this conversation for a dozen years, Jane just turned to me suddenly and out of the blue said, now you remember, if something ever happens to me where I want my ashes scattered in my five favorite wilderness places, and I thought that was odd, and yet I went through that list with her, and um, there I was, uh, not long afterward, uh, contemplating these five journeys into western wilderness places to scatter her ashes, which turned out to be um, an absolutely uh, magnificent healing opportunity for me. That request is what got me back into the natural world, where I picked up the very things we were talking about with those kids uh, in the wilderness therapy program, uh, the beauty, the community, the mystery. I was able in that wild, those wild places to be present. And that's one of the things that I think is most important when you're grieving, whether you're grieving a child leaving home or a divorce or disease or whatever happens in your life that's a difficult transition. It's, it's tough to be present. You want to distract. You want to kill the pain. You want to escape it. And by being out, in the natural world, uh, the natural world really encourages presence and in- allows us to um, be of our hour. That's an interesting point that the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, define beauty as being of one's hour. And when we're going through a difficult time, that's not where we want to be. Uh, and yet the natural world allowed me to, to really deal with the grief that was in front of me and touch that beauty and community and mystery and ultimately come out the other side years later uh, feeling very lucky to have had Jane in my life and to celebrate that rather than to get stuck in the in the dregs of, of mourning and loss and hopelessness that, that come on the heels of a big loss like that. Did you uh, did you have a, a sense of betrayal? You that the you know the wild the nature that you and Jane had so loved had had turned around and and, and killed your wife. I, I did uh, for for about I'd say. Uh, 10 weeks or 12 weeks I had that. Yes, you're right. The the very thing we'd given our lives to, not that we didn't understand very well the risks of being out in the wild. You can't be out that much and not get it that something bad could happen. But nonetheless, um, I did feel uh, betrayed. Uh, in time, though, again, by going out to nature, uh, I realized that everything around me um, will perish as far as the life forms I was perceiving, and that in fact life on Earth would be impossible if death wasn't also a part of it. And so as I sort of got that uh, in looking at the the forest around where we lived on Rock Creek in in southern Montana, um, I, I started to back off the notion that there was this 
intention in nature to harm me or this lack of dependability in nature. Those are human constructs. And in fact, nature does what nature does, and then we apply whatever story we want to uh, to those things. But there was no ill will. There was no um, uh, ill intent uh, on nature's part. It was just a set of circumstances that randomly happened. It was a tragedy, but it was not uh, a diminishment of the power of the natural world to, to heal. You've you've talked about, um, and I imagine you know you you suffer a loss like that. You're you're going to go over it again and again in your mind, and you can tend you know if you if you let it, you can go crazy with this. You know, if we just stopped ten minutes earlier, if we had got a different oh canoe, my you know, all of those questions. Well, absolutely, yes. You you can't overstate what you just said enough. I mean, yeah. I mean, very very little things, because in truth. Um, you, you can drive yourself crazy enough to the point where you could say, if I would have taken that paddle stroke 30 seconds earlier, we wouldn't have hit that rock. And, you know, if we would have stopped for lunch or if we would have you know, gotten the, uh, the shocks replaced on the van, which I was intending to do, you know, on and on and on. And you're right. You can, you can drive yourself absolutely crazy. And you do ultimately your challenge to make peace with the fact that there are some things just simply out of, out of your control. And we do not do well with that particular lesson in this culture. Technology has given us so much satisfaction in how clever we are and how much control we do have that we really forget that a lot of life uh, is out of our control. Who we fall in love with, um, what illnesses we suffer, um, and the fates of our loved ones as well as ourselves. Uh, a lot of it is uh, left to forces that must remain mysterious. And um, we do ourselves a disservice by not making peace with that. And I certainly don't remember any elder in my life uh, teaching me how to make peace with that. I, I grew up thinking that the more control and the more stability you had, the happier you would be when, in fact, um, it doesn't matter how much money you have, how much fame you have, uh, the biggest house in the world you can live in and still be subject to those sorts of surprises and those unexpected circumstances. And, and, and the trick is to emerge from that realization still in love with daily life and still convinced that um, this is a joyous experience on a precious planet. Now, you've gotten there now um, from that dark place. How did, how did you get there? Uh, well, I, I scheduled, if you will, I shouldn't say scheduled, actually, but, but those, those scatterings, those five journeys occurred over several years. I, I made three of them within the first year of Jane's death, and they were about mourning loss. They were about literally uh, dropping to my knees and, and, and weeping at the, at the profound sadness and heartache and hopelessness I was feeling. And, and that's what a grieving ritual is about. Um, but I waited then a couple of years before I did the fourth and fifth one, which involved a, about a 120-mile walk from my home in Red Lodge across the Beartooth Mountains and the Absorca Mountains into Yellowstone to make those. And by then, because I had stayed in touch with nature, because I had continued to try to be present, because I tried to walk through the grief, because I enlisted community and beauty and mystery to my healing, um, I was ready to go um, make that last journey a celebration of Jane's life. So it went from being a, a, a really a terrible sense of being a victim to unspeakable tragedy to being uh, someone who felt very blessed 
and having had 25 years with someone who was really quite a remarkable presence on this on this earth. And I think that in the end, Tom, the last thing I did, if you look at the old hero's journey stories that have been around for a couple thousand years that the ancient Greeks took to such a high level, the last phase of the hero's journey is when the, the person who has suffered, and usually hero's journeys start with something being lost, um, you, you uh, go back to society just as those kids did with wilderness therapy with the instruction of giving something back. So my wife uh, now, Mary, uh, last name Claire, is a, is a psychologist who's very well versed in developmental and social psychology. And so she and I are out now doing programs for people who have gone through transitions. It doesn't have to be loss of a loved one. It can be any transition in their life. And we teach them how to use the lessons of the natural world to help them keep moving through the, the cycle of grief or the cycle of transition. Um, we take those lessons from nature and essentially create dance steps on the ballroom floor so that people can more clearly figure out how they get from point A to point B, from devastation or confusion to uh, contentment and empowerment again. And so that's a kind of giving back that that we're doing together that helps anchor all of the all of the things that I've I've been fortunate enough to learn along the way. I wonder if you talk a little bit more about community. Um, it was you when you read the book. You know you 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 see you and Jane out there in the wilderness. So it it came as a little surprise to me when uh, it was a large number of people showed up for her memorial service. It had excess of six hundred people. Yes, Jane was a much beloved uh, personality. She was out in the wilderness a lot. She taught environmental education in Yellowstone and in far-flung remote places. She was an outward-bound instructor, but yet she also uh, had a very strong commitment to the welfare of her community to the extent she volunteered to do a lot of things with theater and uh, voting uh opportunities, sign people up to vote. And so she, she was known, and it was a small town of about 2,500. So it's, it's very easy to have a large presence uh, in, in a town that small. And so she was, was greatly loved and put a premium on community. And I must say that through this process of losing her and living with her, watching her make that a priority, I came to be less of a loner myself, which is sort of how I lived uh, the early decades of my life, and I became uh, very aware of the fact that if I'm going to access beauty, community, and mystery, and, and general satisfaction in life, uh, I need people, whether it's two or three or four people, or whether it's a whole town. Um, that's back to that interdependence I was talking about earlier. We are not uh, uh, fiercely independent the way we think we are. The the notion of survival of the fittest is as much contrary to the reality of evolution as any phrase taken out of context could ever be. Survival of the fittest, as Darwin understood it and practiced it, uh, kind of the father of evolution, was who is most fit to take advantage of the opportunities that the system in which they live offers. That's the survival of the fittest. It has nothing to do with beating and bludgeoning our competitors uh, and, and emerging on top. And in fact, that is a, probably the most sure road to extinction if you were to follow that. So uh, the role of interdependence and community and family, uh, and this is why we must come together with these uh, challenges we have with society right now, whether it's uh, guns or uh, climate change or anything else. 
this is not going to be survival as it's determined by, you know, who beats the other up most successfully. It's going to be a success as defined by us coming together and coming up with uh, what we value and how we can most treasure and, and protect those values going forward. We just have uh, oh, about two or three minutes left. I want to take you back. You and Jane both grew up in Indiana, I think, uh, met in yes. college, did you? And you? In the book, and we're talking about the carry home, uh, we're talking with Gary Ferguson, you quote uh, Kenneth Rexroth, who also is an Indiana guy, um, and that, that he, I guess he, he left his home state because he, he wanted to find a bigger dream, right, a bigger myth. He, he, he was looking for more expansiveness. I'm not sure you could say it better, I guess. Yeah, um, Rexroth was one of those people who, who sort of looked around, uh, and this was back in the in the fifties, in northern Indiana that had become an area that had become just totally industrialized and and under the um, um, you know direction of agriculture, straight roads, straight crop rows, uh, fields, uh, factories, uh, and so by it, by his account, it did not have even the the smallest uh, plots of nature and woodlot and and even a hedgerow required for us to be in touch with the mysterious. You know, it's interesting that Einstein said that if you've got a choice between being in touch with knowledge or being in touch with mystery, you should always teach mystery. The mystery would be much more useful to your life than actual knowledge would be. And Rexroth was complaining that because things had been so settled and thoroughly civilized, if you will, to the loss of the sources of the mysterious, uh, to pray, pay homage to kind of the god of predictability and stability, as he probably would say, that it was not satisfying to him, and it was no longer a creative place for him, and that the region was not going to be able to reach down and get the kind of inspiration and produce the kind of creative acts uh, that are required of a culture. And so he headed west into the Rockies and ultimately settled in, in California. And I think I felt very much that same constraint. Now, to be honest, I'm older, wiser. I could probably go back to northern Indiana today and see all kinds of opportunities where mystery still lives. But in that kind of fever of youth, I, I got what he said. And I wanted to be in a place where the mountains were big and the, and the rivers were wild and the forests were dark and the animals were fierce. And, you know, that is a reflection, I think, to some extent of, of my age. But it did serve me well. I, I learned a lot from that environment. Uh, and now I have come around long enough and far enough to know that um, the things that I gained from those wild, fierce places are really things of the heart that, that are available to us no matter where we are, anywhere on the world, anywhere in the city. And I'm, I'm very interested in the tracks that nature leaves in us in the city just as much as it leads uh, leaves in us in, in wild Yellowstone. I uh, just want to uh, mention, before we leave here, one of Jane's favorite places, I guess yours as well, um, Capitol Reef here in Utah. Absolutely. In fact, Jane was suffering, as many uh, teenage uh, girls especially do, some boys, uh, when she was young, uh, with uh, anorexia. And it had not even been named at that point when she, when she was experiencing it. She was trying to be a perfect daughter and a perfect 
citizen and uh, kind of drove herself a little crazy. And uh, as often happens with people who get caught up in that perfectionist bent, uh, she she became anorexic. And the way she got over it after a, a devastating event where she tried to overdose on sleeping pills uh, was because a cousin of hers mentioned something called Outward Bound. She came to Capitol Reef and spent uh, four weeks with Outward Bound in that in that enchanted landscape, and learned a lot about herself, and learned from nature uh, a lot uh, as far as what it meant to be empowered, and what it meant to be able to take care of yourself, and what it meant to feel like you belonged, and what it meant to be in a world that didn't really seem to be as concerned with perfect expression of any one thing as nature isn't. Uh, compared to what the human society can do. So it was such a powerful impact on her uh, there in Capitol Reef that that's what set the trajectory of her life to become an Outward Bound instructor and an environmental educator. So it all began in some ways in Capitol Reef by kind of saving her own life. Uh, well, finally, uh, you, Gary Ferguson, your uh, your wife, Mary, you, you, are you still splitting your time between Red Lodge, Montana, and Portland? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, that was wonderful uh, for as long as we did it, but we have decided that life is short and uh, we don't want to spend so much time maintaining uh, multiple places. And so we are settling instead uh, in, in Bozeman, Montana, with one wonderful place still on the northern edge of the Yellowstone ecosystem instead of the northeast edge. Um, we, we like that area very much, and it still gives us easy access to the things that, that delight Mary as, as much as me. And we, we plan to continue going out with this uh, work we're doing. We call it Full Ecology to help people who are going through difficult transitions to help communities even look at how they're oriented to the natural world and what they can learn about how their communities function and how they can grow into the future in a way that works for everyone. So that's the work we're probably going to be doing uh, until uh, it's our time to uh it gets scattered to the to the wind. So uh, we're very excited about it, Tom. Well, it's a beautiful area. Um, we've been uh, enjoying uh, talking with Gary Ferguson. Uh, his latest book's Land on Fire. That's out uh, from Timber Press. Previous books, uh, The Carry Home. We've talked about a couple books on wolves. Uh, and we talked in this conversation also about Shouting at the Sky, Troubled Teens and the Promise of the Wild. If you'd like to check out uh, all of Gary Ferguson's uh, books, go to his website, wildwords.net. Gary Ferguson, a pleasure as always. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. It's such a pleasure to be with you. I appreciate being on. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.